0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com weightloss weight loss.
1: Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. Sometimes a glitch is just a glitch. Your computer program locks up, you close it down again, you open it up again, and you move on because it was just a glitch. So the president's health insurance program, the Affordable Care Act, launches fall 2013 with some problems. Problems with the software, problems with deadlines, problems with public expectations. So what are those? Are those just glitches? Or are we, as some have argued, actually looking at the blue screen of death for Obamacare? Well, that sounds like a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. A debate from Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York, and we have four superbly qualified debaters, two teams of two, who will take opposite sides on this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for that motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Uh, Scott, uh, you have uh, been a practicing physician. You're a former FDA deputy commissioner. You have said that Obamacare is looking more and more like Medicaid, which is an interesting comment because during the Bush administration, you were actually a senior advisor to the Medicaid program. So what we're trying to understand is when you say that Obamacare is looking more like Medicaid, is that a compliment or the
0: reverse? (laughs) Well, it's it's the reverse. It's a problem. Medicaid is quite literally obligating the poor to indecencies in seeking medical care and poor health outcomes. Thank you very much, Scott Gottlieb. And uh, Scott,
1: your partner is? The always provocative Megan McArdle. Ladies and gentlemen, Megan McArdle. Megan, you are also arguing for this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. You are a columnist for Bloomberg View. You are author of the forthcoming book, The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. Given the the start to healthcare.gov, which had some failures in its first week, does that mean it had some – that was good failure or – Bad failure.
2: Uh,
3: well, the reason that I wrote the book is that I think that this, the key to, uh, to succeeding is to find out what works, and the best way to find out what works is to fail and find out what doesn't, and I would say we are finding out what doesn't work. All
1: right, Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Megan McArdle, ladies and gentlemen. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. We have two debaters arguing against this motion. First, let's welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Chate. Uh, Jonathan, you are a daily columnist at New York Magazine. You write political commentary for its website and also for the print magazine. You have written on numerous occasions. You've made this point that the law that President Obama eventually signed off on is essentially based on a moderate Republican health care plan, and you use Romneycare as an example of that. So if that is true, what explains why the Republican Party is now so vociferously against Obamacare?
4: Well, the vast majority of them really don't know what the law does. They're not policy wonks. So when Mitt Romney said he was for it, it sounded like a good, solid Republican idea. But when Barack Obama said he was for it, then it became a socialist plot to destroy America. And if you don't know what's in the law, that's a pretty sensible way to think about what the law does.
1: All right. We see how you're thinking. Jonathan Chait, ladies and gentlemen. And Jonathan, uh, your partner is? Doug Camero. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Dr. Douglas Camero. And, uh, Doug, you are also arguing against this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. You are a family doctor. You're a specialist in preventive medicine. You spent 20 years in the U.S. Public Health Service uh, in a range of issues, clinical research, policy, and uh, reached the rank of assistant surgeon general. You have a book, Dissecting American healthcare, and you started your chapter on health care reform by saying, quote, health is a blessing that money cannot buy. So why, Doug, are we talking about dollars so much here?
2: I think the reason, John, is because though health can't be bought, health care is a big business. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: Doug Camaro. And let's welcome our four debaters. So on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for the motion, Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former FDA Deputy Commissioner for Medical and Scientific Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome
0: Dr. Scott Gottlieb. When it comes to Obamacare, most of the focus is on the broken website and the problems enrolling people into the coverage. But the real failures of this plan go well beyond the Internet. They're embedded in the structure of the law, and they'll become more acute as this scheme unfolds. And tonight I want to briefly address some of the paradoxes embedded in this law. First, Obamacare seeks to lower the cost of health care, but instead it creates new arrangements that will only make medical care more expensive. A big reason is provisions that deliberately force doctors to consolidate their medical practices around hospitals. Having doctors work for hospitals is often the costliest way to deliver care. Second, the law seeks to increase competition between insurers, but Obamacare will actually reduce the number of health plans in the marketplace and leave you with fewer choices. Obamacare also uses regulation to prescribe a single, uniform benefit package. If you look at the health plans that insurance companies sell on the exchanges, the provider networks and the drug formularies are exactly the same. It doesn't matter if you buy a plan that's a bronze plan, a gold plan, or a platinum plan. By buying up to a costlier plan, all you're doing is lowering your co-pays and deductibles. There is no competition between these plans based on benefits or networks. There is no real choice in these exchanges. Third, Obamacare is aimed at reducing the number of uninsured Americans, but the vast majority of the uninsured who get coverage under this scheme will end up on Medicaid. But don't take my word for this. Look at the numbers being put out by the administration. The White House says that 19 million people will be added to Medicaid. That's a 35% increase in the size of the program. But at best, 5 million people will get Obamacare coverage this year, and it's probably going to be closer to 4 million. But we know at least 5 million people lost their policies when the mandates were imposed on the private market and insurers had to drop old plans that didn't conform. And as for the uninsured... For lower middle class folks, for people above 200% of the federal poverty level, family of four earning about $50,000 a year, Obamacare is still too expensive for them, even with the benefits of the subsidies. And so a family of four earning $50,000 a year will have to pay $400 a month even after the subsidies to buy that coverage. That's $5,000 a month, and they're getting a plan with a $3,000 deductible. That's not a good plan for that family. And the problem is that these plans were designed in Washington to meet political aspirations rather than in the marketplace to meet the demands of what consumers needed. And think about this. There were 46.3 million uninsured in 2008 when President Obama took office. This year there were 48 million uninsured Americans. The only way the president's going to leave office with fewer uninsured Americans than when his term began is by obligating more people to Medicaid. Obamacare is really a Medicaid law. And so it begs the question, what about Medicaid? There's now ample evidence in the clinical literature that people on Medicaid are experiencing worse health outcomes than people in other insurance schemes, and sometimes even than the uninsured. I don't consider it successful if the only way we reduce the roles of the uninsured in in this country is by obligating more Americans to a Medicaid program that's quite literally worsening medical outcomes. There were far better ways to address issues of the uninsured in this country and far better ways to address the issues of those who were priced out of the insurance market. For all these reasons and more, Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Scott Gottlieb. And that's our
1: motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And here to speak against this motion, Dr. Douglas Camaro. He is a Professor of uh, Clinical Family Medicine at Georgetown University and Chief Scientist in Health Services and Policy Research at RTI International. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Douglas Cameron.
2: Let's let's turn the clock back a little bit to 2008, t- 2009, when this law was being debated. Uh, at that time, we had 40 to 45 million people uninsured. We were spending two and a half trillion dollars a year on health, health care, and growing. And we had some of the worst statistics for health outcomes in the developed world. In addition, most of the insurance products that we saw at that time didn't have portability. If you lost your job, you often lost your insurance. They didn't have guaranteed issue. So if you had a pre-existing condition and tried to get health insurance and you're not in a big group, forget about it. And there were no national standards for insurance policies. We were largely, not exclusively, but we were largely in a fee-for-service systems with incentives really pushing towards more care. Not better care, not the appropriate care, but the more you did, the more you got paid. And equally important were the projections, and this is just now four years ago, the projections of where we are going to be by 2018, which is just four years from now, if nothing had been done. Over 60 million people uninsured at that point. Health care spending going from $2.4 million trillion to $4.7 trillion a year. Family health care premiums going up from $13,000 to average. 30000 a year, Medicare trust fund, runs out of money, and no change in that fee-for-service culture that pays for more medicine, more health care, not necessarily better. So in March of 2010, which is now almost four years ago, we had this law signed. Hugely complex, admittedly, admittedly imperfect law, but not just insurance form, quality improvement, cost reductions. What are some of the things that have happened in the first three years of this law? Young adults, 26 and under, now can get coverage on their parents' policies, and 3 million have. Pre-existing conditions not allowed to prevent co- coverage. There's portability of insurance coverage. No lifetime caps. Community rating, which means if you're in a small business, one person gets very sick or their family member does, it doesn't raise the rates for everybody. No lifetime caps on coverage. And in, in some ways, very importantly, no copays, no deductibles for preventive care that's evidence-based. We're now paying hospitals for outcomes, not the services they deliver. There are penalties for hospital readmissions when someone's discharged and then readmitted to the hospital soon afterwards. Importantly, cost reforms have slowed down dramatically, have slowed down cost dramatically. Then we come to October 2013. Everyone knows. What a disaster. Okay? People can't sign up. The computer systems don't work. The website's a mess. But even conceding that all this was a mess, let's look what's happened recently. Six million enrollees, two millions in exchanges, 4.4 million in Medicaid, people up to 400 percent of the federal poverty levels are getting subsidies to help pay for their insurance, and cost increases continue to moderate. Let me conclude now by asking you to remember where we were and where we are now. I want to quote a satiric newspaper called The Onion. (laughs) The headline was, Nation Recalls Simpler Time When Healthcare System Was Broken Beyond Repair. Here's the quote. Back then, if you couldn't afford health care insurance and got really sick, you went bankrupt, plain and simple. They didn't have this whole mess of lower-cost options or all these subsidies you might or might not qualify for based on your income. People didn't have to deal with any of that stuff and those headaches. Just went ahead and died of preventable causes. Douglas,
1: Douglas Cameron, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion. Obamacare is now Beyond Rescue, you have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. Let's please welcome Megan McArdle. She is a columnist for Bloomberg View and author of the forthcoming book, The Upside of Down. Ladies and gentlemen, Megan McArdle.
3: You know, these debates often tend to sort of devolve into, who doesn't want people to die? That's not actually what's on the table here. The issue is not, are Democrats socialists, are Republicans stupid and venal and terrible people? The issue is, is this law, Obamacare, accomplishing what it set out to do? And can it survive in its current form? So what did we want? What were we promised? We were promised lower costs for indi- government and individuals, and we've heard some of that. The administration likes to claim that this has already happened. It hasn't. Healthcare cost growth has indeed slowed, but healthcare cost growth started slowing in 2004 when Barack Obama was a junior sen- state senator from Illinois. He had not even been elected to the U.S. Senate, much less to the presidency. Um, you see a big decline in 2005 to 2007, another between 2007 and 2009, but it actually leveled off. In 2010, right when Obamacare comes in and cost growth has been kind of bumping along if you look at the OECD figures on this, we wanted people to get healthier as a result of this law, but then we got the Oregon Medicaid study, which is the gold standard in studies of of Medicaid, and it looked at the the three things you really want to look at for preventative care. It looked at hypertension control, cholesterol control, and it showed no statistically significant results. We wanted pe- people with pre-existing conditions, all of the, the millions of people with pre-existing conditions we were told were out there to be able to buy insurance. But when they set up pools in order to cover people with pre-existing conditions, they were expecting to get 400,000 people between 2010 and 2013. Instead, they got a quarter of that number, and they only managed to get that by lowering the requirements and doing an aggressive outreach campaign to sign more people up. And we wanted expanded health care coverage, right? But at this point, we can't even say that there are more people insured right now than there were on January 15th of 2013. The administration says that there have been 4 million people added to Medicaid, but half of those people came in states that didn't even do the Medicaid expansion. So, definitionally, they were already eligible for Medicaid. We got 2.2 million people on the exchanges, but 5 million people had their policies canceled. It was also supposed to get really popular, right, because we had all this great stuff, this giant Rube Goldberg apparatus layered on top. We didn't take anything away. We only gave. And it's kind of time for a Dr. Phil moment. How's that working for you? Nothing is working the way the administration said. You can say it doesn't really matter whether it's unpopular, right? It was never reasonable to think that everyone was going to get to keep the, the doctors and the plans that they wanted. Something had to change. And this is a foundation for something better. But this foundation has so many cracks that you cannot build a healthy structure on top of it. Just look at everything the administration has had to do in the last few months just to keep the law running. They had to delay the employer mandate and the enforcement, apparently because they couldn't even figure out how to make this regulation work. It may never go into effect, which means we'll lose millions of people who were supposed to get coverage expanded, and the costs will go up to the government. They delayed the Spanish language website, and now apparently part of it is written in Spanglish. Despite the fact that Hispanics are a major constituency for insurance extensions, they delayed the small business exchanges, they've done all these things by asserting emergency powers, by doing administrative fixes through executive fiat. All of these changes have had the effect of undermining and destabilizing the law that they think is so important. And what happens when Republicans get into into office? Essentially, they've made it so that Republicans can undo two-thirds of this law with a stroke of the presidential pen. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. The administration has destroyed their own law in order to save it.
1: Thank, Thank you, you, Megan Mcardle. And that is our motion: Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And now, to speak against this motion, coming to the lectern is Jonathan Chait. He is a daily columnist for New York Magazine. He's author of the book *The Big Con: Crackpot Economics and the Fleecing of America*. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Chait.
4: Has anybody here ever renovated a house? I've done it twice. It was hell. Every day I went through brought fresh misery and fresh reason to think why am I doing this? But at the end it worked. And the reason it worked is because. We know how to renovate houses, right? So what our opponents have been trying to do for months and months and months, actually, is, is paint this picture where every time the contractor comes to you and says, oh, it turns out they don't have this color. Oh, oh, it turns out the plumber is unavailable on this date. It means that the whole thing is going to collapse on itself. But actually, nothing like that is happening at all. And there's no evidence that anything like this is happening. The, the main argument that the opponents have been making the entire time is that there's going to be a death spiral, That's the only plausible mechanism that they have that the law will fail. A death spiral is when you have too many old, sick people who drive up the costs, making the premiums more expensive, leaving the healthy people to flee, driving up costs more. That is theoretically possible. It's not something that you could possibly happen in this law. In fact, if you want to say, is the law succeeding, you don't have to ask the administration. You can ask... The, ins- the insurers, right? Because the insurers have recently been saying they're very happy with the mix of people. The mix of people you have in the exchanges is sound. It's sustainable. They've got a mix of people that's healthy enough to keep the exchanges going forward. What's more, even if you had more old people going into the exchanges than they, they expect, the Kaiser Health Foundation ran the numbers and said, what's the worst-case scenario? We don't get any increase in young people at all. And they said it would be about a 2.4% increase in premiums. If any of you have ever had health insurance and you get a 2.4% increase over your bill last year, you'd say, thank God, it's only 2.4% increase, right? That's a rounding error. No one notices 2.4%. That couldn't possibly set off a debt spiral. They're, they're giving you a mix of wishes and hopes and completely debunked facts. They said cost growth leveled off in 2010. No, cost growth in 2012 was lower than in any year in 50 years, and in fact this is important because when the law was passed cost growth was the main thing they talked about Obamacare was supposed to control costs and they said no no it's gonna make costs explode with all this bureaucracy and regulation they're gonna go out of control and so now they're reduced instead of saying this disaster of cost growth is going to happen. They're going to say this incredible miracle of low-cost growth is simply a coincidence. This wonderful thing that's happened has nothing to do with the, with the gigantic change in health care reform that happened just before costs started going to the lowest level in 50 years. And you can't prove that it's not a coincidence, but, but you have to – this is indicative of the mentality we're dealing with when they've simply moved from one possible disaster scenario to another possible disaster scenario. So you want to say, so why are we having this kind of lurch from one argument, abandoning these arguments when they disappear and simply coming up with new ones? The truth is they disagree with the goals of the law. And I think you could hear that in their remarks. They say there's less choice. And it's true. The government says insurers have to provide certain benefits, right? They have to provide pregnancy coverage. That's been maternity care. Those are the most controversial things that opponents have cited because they want people who are male, who are old, to not have to pay for those things because that's an ideological difference between the two sides. And that's fine for them to have an ideological difference between the two sides. But we're not here to debate whether this law is a good idea. We're here to debate whether the law is actually working. And the truth is, the only reason they're desperately trying to claim the law is not working is because they oppose national health insurance, and that's it.
1: Thank you, Jonathan Sheik. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And now we go on to round two, and round two is where Uh, The debaters address one another directly. The team arguing for the motion, Scott Gottlieb and Megan McArdle, argued. In a sense, they're arguing that the law from its beginnings has always been beyond rescue, that it reduces competition, it reduces uh, choice, it pushes people into Medicaid, a system which does not have good medical outcomes or at least not the kind of medical outcomes that people would aspire to for it. They've described the law as a Rube Goldberg apparatus and that the administration only gets away with calling it successful in any way by continuously moving the goalposts. The team arguing against the motion, Douglas Camero and Jonathan Chait, say, yeah, the law is not perfect, but they're arguing that it's working in real ways already, that there are more people insured now than there were three years ago in the United States, and that in general that we've come a long way. And they also argue that in terms of the basic law, that lots of countries do it and that in fact it does work. They argue that the opposition from their opponents is more ideological, that they just don't actually want the law to succeed. A question I'd actually like to put to the side arguing for the motion is, is that the case? Would you, in an ideal world, would Obamacare succeed uh, or would you hate that, Scott Gottlieb?
0: Well, look, I... <laughs> There's nothing inherently wrong with pooling people um, based on what state they live in, for example, to get back to the point that this is copying uh, Mitt Romney's plan. What's inherently wrong with this law is, is the way that the law tries to prescribe a uniform federal standard for what needs to be in everyone's insurance policies. And so these decisions get made in a political context, and you end up with policies that are exceedingly expensive, laden down with mandates, and don't meet what consumers want. Scott, to the point of the, of the motion... And granting all of that, are you
1: saying that, therefore, the law cannot work, that it's doomed to collapse in on itself? It's inherent. Which is The structure
0: from. of this is inherently flawed. Scott, can I,
2: can I ask a question? Scott, you're, the you're saying – you're describing what you would have liked, but let's be real. Let's be realistic. If the choice is we have Obamacare now, it's a law, what are the chances of any kind of a scenario that you're describing taking flight – passing both houses of Congress in any time in the foreseeable future.
0: I think that the problem is that the people in Washington, um, progressives in Washington, can't resist the temptation to tinker with every aspect of what the provisions are, and you end up with regulations that prescribe exactly what people have to have and don't have to have. You have a a law that gets laden down with mandates, and it ends up being exceedingly expensive to provide this coverage to everyone, so the insurers have to go after the networks. It's exactly what we've done in Medicaid. We promised a very rich... Um, set of benefits on paper in Medicaid. It looks like a fabulous program, but we know Medicaid recipients can't get access to the care. Okay, Megan?
3: Uh, Well, I, I would say that I certainly agree with Jonathan Chait that this is going much, much, much worse than I thought, and there are all sorts of problems that I didn't anticipate. So to that extent, it's true. I'm picking on stuff that I did not predict because my worries at the time of passage were about things like the federal budget deficit, and would the cost controls hold? Um, but we haven't gotten to the point where I can worry about those sorts of things. We've gotten to the point where I'm now worried that this is going to implode and destroy and by the market impl- for And insurance. by implosion, you mean
1: bankruptcy? You mean sicker people than before? I,
3: I think that uh, Jonathan is way more optimistic than I that a death spiral is impossible. Um, for one thing, you know, I'd, I haven't heard the insurers saying – that they're real pleased with the mix. Uh, Humana and other people have said it's it's more adverse than they expected. No, at, um, the, at the J.P.
4: Morgan conference, a series of insurers were interviewed, and they all said that they were generally getting what they expected.
3: Um, there they were also out. a series of insurers quoted saying that they'd had adverse. And they've announced <laughs> <earnings> <laughs> that they're reductions. announcing earnings adjustments because of their adverse selection. But that's not really even even the issue is that, you know, a lot of the the mechanisms they're depending on are these things called these risk corridors, which are temporary kind of reinsurance facilities to help insurers transition. Um, And also the fact that these subsidies basically grow with the cost of the policy so that if we do start seeing young people not in the pool, healthy people not in the pool, so costs go up, well, then the subsidies will rise and and these risk corridors will kick in. But those things end in 2018.
4: Let's let Jonathan Chait jump in. Right, but what's what? What we're seeing right now is that they're not even going to need that kind of adjustment in the first place because they're they're saying the pool of people is young enough that it's meeting their expectations that they don't need to raise premiums whatsoever. And so, if you want to, if, if you have to ask, what is the definition of success? The definition of success is putting in place a law that will get, at a certain point, to having a, a dramatic expansion of coverage. So, you're at one point you said. Well, by January 1st, there aren't as many people covered as there were before. I said
3: we That's, don't know. Right, we the don't government know. Will You're not right. You said we don't that know we have exactly. More people right.
4: covered. We don't know this number of people who had their plans canceled. It's, it's way less than 5 million, we don't know, so we can't say exactly how many more were covered. But why is January 1st the first day the law started the best mark? The, the law is supposed to work over a period there of years. I want
1: to hear the answer to that question.
3: seems uh, like. like a, a, Megan, take it. Totally fair question. But again, this is so much worse than I would have predicted. I was a critic of the law. But if you had asked me, is it likely that there could be fewer people insured, even but small number, on January 1st, I would have said, no, that's insane. Doug Cameron, Yeah,
2: I want to go back and ask the question, you guys say, can't be saved, can't be fixed, what's what's the plan then?
3: Uh, uh.
1: Well, actually, they don't need to actually answer that question, (laughs) technically, to win this debate.
3: Uh, But I I will say that uh, Mr. Chait said that I'm against national health care, which is actually not true. Um, I I have long been proposing that the government should provide catastrophic reinsurance for people uh, basically picking up medical costs above 15% of their income. It preserves the market mechanism, and it makes sure that people do not get bankrupted by their medical bills. I think, it's a, I think that is actually the kind of system that you could grow out of Obamacare if it fails.
1: Jonathan
4: Chay. The reason I wrote that you're against national health care is because in 2009, you wrote a column called, Why I Oppose National Health Care. <laughs> I don't see how we can even be disputing this. You've also predicted – a few months ago you were predicting the exchanges might not even open on January 1st, that the administration would have to just stop its whole law. So if you're talking about moving the goalposts, your definition of failure just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Well, I'm just
3: just saying that in 2010 and 2011 and 2012 and 2013, I have written – that uh, I, I support this sort of catastrophic reinsurance program. I've been proposing it for a fairly long time.
0: Let me tell Let's you what a bar looks like. Um, every year, this is a provision in a law that people haven't noticed yet, every year that these subsidies and the these sort of value of the health plan sold in this law get repriced. In this marketplace, they get repriced off the second cheapest plan in every market. The second cheapest plan in Florida is a plan in, that has seven pediatricians for a county with 250,000 kids. Next year, all the policies in Florida will now be repriced off that plan. That's a death spiral.
4: You're using the word "death spiral" in a way that no one in healthcare economics ever uses it.
0: It's a death spiral in the quality of the coverage. You end up with a plan that looks like Medicaid. Now, again, I haven't heard anyone defend Medicaid.
2: I, th- I want to go back to your point, though, well, that you. I I think one of the things we have to remember is that this law changes lots of things. It doesn't just change the coverage. It also talks about who's going to be taking care of patients for Medicaid, what, what the doctors are going to be paid, as you know as a practicing doctor, or where you practice. A lot of places don't take Medicaid, and they don't take it because the rates are laughable. I don't think it's something about the fact that the patients have a certain problem that they're not willing to deal with seems unlikely. It's a matter of dollars and cents. One of the things this does is at least temporarily, and presumably it could be extended, raise the rates of Medicaid to Medicare. A lot of doctors take care of Medicare, Medicare patients. And also I, I would think that you'd be happy to see that these kinds of, what seemed to me at least, speaking not from the inside, as a conservative philosophy, that you're saying, look, if this doesn't work very well, clearly these high-priced providers, wherever they are, are going to have to make some kind of a change. These hospitals or other places that are going to be left out of the networks pretty soon, they're not going to have people to go. I'm not happy
0: giving people a false promise. We've done that with Medicaid, and we've done it now with Obamacare. Obamacare will evolve into Medicaid. It will be the same quality, the same narrow networks, the because, same... Port- because you're predicting it. Well, it's already happening. I mean, if you look at the quality of these plans, if you look at the networks in Obamacare, they are Medicaid networks. If you look at the plans that have that are preparing bids for next year, it's Medicaid plans that didn't get into the market this year. This will evolve into a Medicaid benefit. We didn't need to obligate people to a Medicaid benefit, and we have done nothing to, exist, to fix the existing Medicaid benefit. The changes you talk about was a temporary increase, a small increase in payment to primary care providers that now it at the very point that we're going to push 19 more million people into Medicaid. Can you imagine trying to service 19 more million people with the existing Medicaid program? What is that going to look like? That's why you
4: keep saying obligate people to Medicaid, but I don't think the word means what you think it means. No one's obligated to go on Medicaid. People are offered to go on Medicaid, and they very rationally choose to go on Medicaid. Because it's free. Right. Now, our opponents have made two different claims about Medicaid. Scott's made a terrible argument about the quality of Medicaid, and, and Megan's made one that's merely bad. Scott's, <laughs> Scott's argument, he's... he's, he's obliquely citing studies that have, that have taken two populations, one of which is on Medicaid and one of which is not on Medicaid and compared their health. Hundreds now, if of you're studies. on Medicaid, you're in a terrible place. Something has gone bad in your life. You're very poor. You're very sick. Bad things are happening to you. So a lot of studies comparing these two people are comparing two completely different kinds of populations and finding the people on Medicaid are worse off. Jonathan, Those are say, studies people don't take seriously. The, for studies control the for better that. study that Megan cites is still not a very good use of data. It's not a good use of data for two reasons there are a series of studies in the effectiveness of medicaid many of these studies most of them show what you would intuitively think going on medicaid and being able to see doctors even if you don't get a lot of choice even if a lot of doctors don't want to take the low prices is better than not having health insurance and not going to go to the doctor at all because as my partner explained in fairly strong detail not having health insurance is dangerous it's terrible nobody wants to have it and people are right not to want to have it
1: I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. I want to remind you that we are in the question-and-answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Let's go to some audience questions in the reddish shirt
3: Hi, I'm
0: Dana. Um, so we've seen, as we've said, um, universal health care being successfully implemented in other similar countries to the U.S. Can we take lessons from successful implementation of universal health care in, or- in order to prevent Obamacare from being
3: unsuccessful or beyond repair?
1: Uh- that's a question I think that's for this side, so I'm going to let them take it. I'll let you give you a response depending on what they say, uh, Megan Mcardle.
3: Um, I think of it as sort of like the Autobahn, which is great, but I wouldn't necessarily say that you could just build that in the United States now. We already have a highway system, um, and so looking at what another country has done with a really long history is helpful in the sense that you can you can see elements that work, but that doesn't mean that we can have Germany's healthcare system. We have a different set of doctors and nurses and patients and all sorts of things. And that's why I like the idea of a kind of very American. We're going to have the government ensure your financial losses after a certain point, but we're going to leave you out there as a market-driven consumer making choices about what sort of health care you want when you when you get sick. I'll decide how like to respond know, I, to that. I think
2: that's exactly Dog the camera. point, it, and that is if you don't like a state-run kind of program, then you, know, you, you don't like the kind of systems that are elsewhere, and you can say – We're not the same. We're different. But it is interesting that every advanced economy uh, in the West and some parts of the East has these kinds of programs, and yet there's something special about us where we can't seem, apparently, to figure out a way to do it here. We've got to have some special American take on it. So I think we probably can learn a lot. I think we probably can learn a lot from other countries.
0: Well, you know, we... I mean, we have, look, we have a market that's much more fragmented, a much larger country. We have people who want to exercise more choice in, in, in their benefits design. We have people who have higher expectations than what many people are willing to um, acquiesce to in other countries. And one final point I'd make is that the structures in Obamacare that I've talked about tonight, the narrow networks, the closed drug formularies, I guarantee you they're going to be showing up in your commercial plans in the next two years. Jonathan Chait.
4: I, I, here's one way to tie this together is for years and years when you asked conservatives about national health reform, they would say some horror story, right? They would say some man in Canada walked 100 miles in the snow and lost his feet because of the socialist horrors of, of Canada to come to the freedom of America, and everyone in Britain has lost their teeth because of the, the, the NIH, <laughs> and all these, you know, weird kind of mix of but anecdotes that's actually and half-truths, <laughs> and that was sort of like, that was what was like floating around out there, and I think what's happened here is that all these horror stories have simply migrated to the United States and now describe Obamacare and they've kind of forgotten all about the horrors of socialized medicine and the way that they understood national health insurance in these other countries is now the way they understand national health insurance in the United States in this very partial anecdotal kind of slightly hysterical way.
1: I'm so so tempted to ask who in the audience is British and would like to smile at us (laughs) right now. Another question.
3: I'm Michelle. Um, I'd love to ask the the group against the motion to have a chance to explain why the Obamacare needs a bit more time for it to play out. I find it a little bit unrealistic that partisan zealots in Washington are ready to kill it, and it's only a couple of months out of the gate. And I'd love to hear them explain to the audience why and how Obamacare is going to succeed over the next year.
4: Well, you know, I think it's kind of self-evident that this this target date that we've heard from the other side of are things better by January 1st is, is, is oddly irrelevant, the first day that the law is actually in operation. The point is to make a change over a series of years. Now, the outreach campaign to the public is something that by definition just takes – Months and months and months and years and years and years to build up, and no one envisioned that the law would reach its coverage target even under the best circumstances in the first year. And again, the website was busted, so naturally you're just going to move back the target for the ramp-up. You're going to hit it more slowly, but nothing about that process changes the law's ability to, to fundamentally reach its goals in the course of time.
1: Other
0: side, respond? Well, look, I, you know, I'll just make one comment to follow up on what Doug said. That, 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 what Gottlieb. Doug's talked about a lot here tonight, the payment reforms. These are things we've been talking about for a decade. We could have done a lot of that without disrupting the entire commercial insurance marketplace. These were bipartisan ideas. I'm not sure that Obamacare is going to successfully implement them anyway. I'll just give you one anecdote. They have a new law that Hospitals get penalized for readmissions, and so hospitals are admitting fewer patients. And when patients show up in the ER, they're being put on what's called observation status, sitting in the hospital for 36 hours, not being admitted. Um, and since they're not admitted to the hospital, it's considered outpatient, so they're being hit with 20% copays on that. So we're just and, cost shifting the patients. And, and of course, no other chemical.
2: hospitals are working on programs where they have outreach workers for the first time to try to follow up the patients. This isn't
0: Obamacare, Doug. These were ideas we could have done apart from disrupting the entire market. But they were it's in It's not the law. very much
2: part of, the, of Obamacare. I mean, you're saying Obamacare is beyond rescue. We're saying there's lots of parts that are doing good things and interesting
0: things. Obamacare thing. is a federalization of insurance, though. That's, that's what Obamacare is. I mean, this was, a, this was a feature added into Obamacare. We could have done it nice. as a separate bill.
4: It's part of the law, and it's working. And you're saying this functional part of the law could might have been passed without Obamacare. But well, whether or not that's true, it's in the law. Is it an unsuccessful a, but federalization
0: but, but they, of health care? It's, it's or bait and switch. They're arguing components of Obamacare. That's not the essence of what the law set out to do. There were things that were attached to Obamacare. The Sunshine Act's part of Obamacare. No, the law, the law
4: set out to do things to reform the cost structure of medicine, to control costs, and it, by all evidence, is succeeding beyond the best expectations. You know, the, and the recession lowered medical spending. was there were two honest.
0: goals. So—
3: they're I mean, yeah, yes, Ma- they, they, Megan Mcardle. They, even the government's actuaries say, even you know, CMS economists are saying that it was the recession, not Obamacare. But look, is everything in Obamacare going to go away? No. Obamacare involved, for example, changes to the student loan program. Are those going to get rolled back <laughs> if the insurance markets <laughs> don't work out? No. Um, the question is, are the major superstructures going to to stay in place, and especially the things that you needed to do of of a piece? Are we going to go back to kids? We're we going to take kids under 26 off their parents' insurance. I doubt it. But that doesn't, you know, you can't pass this whole law to Megan, do that. Megan, are you
1: saying that those, that those few examples of things that are popular and working are fringe to the basic the, concept? That's entirely fringe okay. to the Okay. Well, are those the, things fringe to the basic concept of Obamacare when i want to put to the side that was arguing those points?
4: No. I mean, the law, the law intended to do a lot of things. It intended to cover people in a lot of ways. Covering people under 26, that was the way they covered people under 26. But controlling costs, the, what it decided to do was not have one big blunt force way to hold down medical inflation. They, they let a 1,000 f- flowers bloom and changed the incentive structure in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of good evidence that it's okay, really Okay, so working. what we have here is Insurance. a basic
1: disagreement about what we mean by Obamacare. It's a big
4: law with, a lot of, with two major goals accomplished in a bunch of different ways. All right, but I
1: mean, you both need to persuade the audience that what you're Talking about is the Obamacare that we're arguing about. And you, as, an mem- as audience members, you need to consider that. Um, right down in front here.
0: Hi, I'm Dave. Thank you so much, Intelligence Squared, and thank you to the debaters. 2.7 million people under the age of 30 out of 7 million enrollees is what hinges Obamacare's success. Social Security and Medicare, $66 trillion in deficits. What provisions in the law are there to ensure Obamacare does not result in financial failure like Social Security and Medicare when it hinges on taking from the young to get to the old when the demographics clearly suggest this is unsustainable? Thank Thank you. you.
1: (laughs) <laughs> and it's a sort of big philosophical question, which wraps up everything that we've been talking about. So I think we should take it. And that's
2: exactly what insurance is about. And so if you don't want to have a system where people contribute so that the entire population benefits, then you don't have a system like that. But as a young gish person, I can't quite see uh, yourself, you know, you may feel that this is a big problem. Guess what? There's a future you. And the future you <laughs> is going to be much older. And it's going to be.
4: Right.
1: If he walks carefully in traffic, because. <laughs> <laughs> Megan McCartley, want to respond?
3: You know, I, I think that that is a political issue. Uh, we already on net transfer a lot to older people. And, and a lot of the setup here is, is transferring more pe- more to older people and to sicker people. Is that politically sustainable when that's a minority of the voting base and when they're already getting most of the the transfers and growing every day and when the budget is under strain, when we have to find ways to cut I do question that. I question whether in 20 years we're still going to be gung-ho about giving money to people over the age of 50 instead of people over the age of 65. A
1: great question, because it really wraps up what this whole debate has been about. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. So on to round three, closing statements by each debater in turn, here to summarize his position against this motion that says Obamacare is now beyond rescue, Uh, Dr. Douglas Camaro, a family doctor and former assistant surgeon general.
2: The motion that we're talking about is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. We've had a lot of fun uh, throwing statistics back and forth and trying to make clever remarks, but it seems to me this really comes down to a very personal question. Given where we are, what's come before What's likely to happen in two scenarios, we keep Obamacare or we dump it, what should we do? And uh, like most of us, I could cite personal stories about health care coverage and access, recent ones, about friends who had trouble getting coverage because of existing conditions, uh, or about young people, like two of our kids, who have already gotten affordable insurance coverage between college and their first jobs. But I think really the most telling story that I want to mention in conclusion is about Medicaid, much maligned in this, in this discussion today. But 35 years ago, my first job in the Public Health Service was working as a GP in the National Health Service Corps in a community health center in an urban underserved part of town but because that city was in this state, that is in, in New York State, a state that had a, and still has a generous Medicaid program, most of our patients had insurance. Most of our patients had access to care. They were poor. They were working or disabled. But they had health care. They had a medical home. And they had prescription drug benefits. And they benefited from it, despite what you've heard here today. A lot of good care is delivered to Medicaid patients. When I later moved to Washington, D.C. and looked for a job in Virginia, Doug, I just want Medicaid. to tell you
1: you have 10 seconds left. Wow. I'll give you an extra five, so okay. cut to the chase.
2: I <laughs> want to say that because of Obamacare, a lot of people are going to have Medicaid, but also a lot of doctors are going to be paid more because, to take care of Medicaid, and there's more money for the National Service Corps to put doctors right. like me taking care of them. Thank you, Thank Doug
1: you. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a practicing physician and a former FDA deputy commissioner. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Gottlieb.
0: If I were asked to distill down Obamacare's central flaw, it would simply be this. The law tries to exert so much control over aspects of medicine and healthcare that are subject to so much heterogeneity uh, and individualism that nobody should ever have thought that they could be micromanaged from a remote bureaucracy in Washington and a big piece of legislation. The result... Is what you're seeing, an overengineering that may have started out elegant on someone's flowcharts but became undone when it was subjected to political realities and the marketplace, and and the marketplace had to conform to its rules. And the result is a massive exercise in unintended consequences and a health insurance product that clearly people don't want. Uh, There's already evidence plans aren't entering the market for 2015. Premiums certainly will rise next year, probably not as much as we thought because of the reinsurance pools, but those pools eventually go away. Networks and drug formularies will have to be narrowed further next year as this whole market gets repriced off the second cheapest plan in every state. 2014 was the high watermark for this scheme. The insurance product will only get worse from here, and this is hardly the ambition That its architects had in mind. Obamacare surely will help some people, but a lot more will be hurt as they find themselves spending more money than they previously did to buy their way out of the scheme. We didn't have to hurt some people to help some people in this country, uh, but that's precisely what we did.
1: Thank you, Scott Gottlieb. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And here to speak against the motion in his summary statement, Jonathan Chait. He's a daily columnist for New York Magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Chait
4: let me let you in on a secret. When we set up this debate back in the fall, it was a while ago, it looked like Obamacare might really collapse. The website was broken. We didn't know when it would be fixed. We didn't know if it would be fixed. Some people thought it would never be fixed. It was possible the law would actually not come into effect, but now it has come into effect. Now we're actually living the experience of this law. So the position that was an outlandish and somewhat exaggerated fear three months ago is now kind of silly. And I think if you look back in the history of Libertarian anti-statism is in America. There's a long tradition of these kinds of fear-mongering predictions – Senators who were opposed to child labor laws 100 years ago saying that children would refuse to do chores in their household. Ronald Reagan saying if we pass Medicare, the government will tell doctors they can't live here, they can't live there, and one day we'll look back at a day when we had freedom in America and wonder what happened to it. This is the constant recurring pattern, Social Security, all kinds of civil rights laws, labor laws. The American far right lives in terror of government. It's ideologically understandable that they would oppose these laws, but they translate this ideological terror into a series of verifiable predictions about what will happen if these laws come into effect. And one day, we're going to look back at the kinds of predictions they've been making about Obamacare, and those will go in the time capsule, and they'll look just as silly as the predictions that were made about all these other reforms, which is not to say that it works perfectly. It's not to say those other things work perfectly. Believe me, child labor was a big part of the economy 100 years ago, but but these changes did fundamentally work. The market responded. People responded. And I think when we look back in time, we'll see that the people who were saying the law must fail, were really just people who didn't agree with its goals in the first place.
1: Thank you, Jonathan Chait. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue, and here to summarize her position in support of this motion, Megan McArdle, she's a blogger and columnist for Bloomberg View. Ladies and gentlemen, Megan McArdle.
3: So I, I don't want to go into dueling anecdotes. We can talk about the people who have gotten coverage, and there are people who have who couldn't get it before, and I'm happy for them. Or I could talk about the people who have written to me and said, now I can't afford coverage, and I had it before. And the question isn't whether the status quo was bad, or whether anyone on this stage is a bad person. I think we all didn't like the status quo. We're all good people. We all want to help other Americans. The question is whether the law is undermining its own goals. To, to think about going forward we you know mr tate says it's it's now here in fact we still have a, lo- a long way to go with a bunch of unpopular stuff that is going to happen small businesses are starting to get a wave of cancellations that is going to come through the year and they're being asked for a lot more money a lot of that is due to obamacare we've got comparative effectiveness research which is going to start determining what sorts of things medicare will reimburse at what rates We've got the, the individual mandate. People are gonna, aren't going to pay it this year. They pay it in 2015. As each of those things comes due, there will be an outcry from people who are affected. And the administration has so far shown no willingness to stand up. Yes, you may have to make, break an omelet to make eggs, but the administration's not going to tell the eggs that. And the Republicans certainly aren't going to make the eggs crack themselves. So if we are not willing to to impose the pain. And so far, we haven't. This law cannot survive. It is set up as a giant piece of interlocking machinery. You can't just rip the carburetor out and hope that it's still working. That is why Obamacare is beyond rescue, because we are not willing to face the hard choices the law made necessary.
1: Thank you, Megan McArdle. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued best, The motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. We've had you vote before the debate. We've had you vote a second time after hearing the arguments on this very motion. And remember, the team whose numbers have changed the most in your judgment, in percentage point terms, will be declared our winner. So the initial vote on the motion, Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Before the debate, 16% agreed with the motion. 53% were against 31% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, you voted a second time, and the winner is the one that has changed the numbers the most in percentage point terms. So here are the results of the second vote. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. The team arguing for the motion, their vote went to 32%. That's an increase of 16 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team against the motion, they went from 53%. Second vote, 59%. That's only 6%. It is not enough. The team arguing for the motion, Obamacare is now beyond rescue, has triumphed in this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared US debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City with support from the Paul E. Singer Foundation. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosenkrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Claya Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash intelligence squared. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening to the Intelligence Squared U.S. podcast. There are lots of other NPR podcasts, including great interviews, highlights from the week's news, storytelling, and entertainment. Browse them all on iTunes under podcasts.